Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Church, would you bow your heads with me in prayer before we begin? God, we thank you for calling all of us, God, each and every one of us to your house, so that we may hear your word, God, so that we may have the chance to surrender the contents of our hearts, Lord. And God, may today be the day that we are touched by you. May today be the day that, God, we receive the truth that is from above, Lord. God, we pray for clarity of understanding, God, and the faith to receive the precious gift that you have restored for us in your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, be upon this time of sharing your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, moron! was originally a scientific term coined by a psychologist named Henry Goddard. And he used that word to describe a person with a genetically determined mental age between 8 and 12, an IQ significantly lower than that of an average human being. The word moron. Some of you guys were shocked. When do we use that word? I don't know if this is a word that is... Uh, uh, prevalent in your everyday life. Uh, perhaps some of you guys use this word on, more, on a regular basis. Uh, some of you guys may have heard it, used it this very morning. I'm not sure, but when do we use this word? When do we hear this word or phrase, what a moron? We use this word when we describe to someone who displays unreasonable behavior. Someone who brings shame to himself or herself usually has this very little awareness of himself and he essentially shames himself. At the same time, sometimes he's also too arrogant and self-centered to see the fault in himself. All that to convey the general notion of not very clever and more clearly, you're lacking intelligence. So... Rightfully so, if someone refers to you as moron, or you're being called a moron on a regular basis, this is not something that you should be pleased with. This is not something that should excite you, that you should be happy about. And all of this is to convey the notion, you know what, you don't really get it. What a goof. You have no clue or no idea what's going on. Uh, Folly is another word that comes to mind when we use that word. When do we use that word, folly? That's not a word that we use often, is it? 
Follies is more, uh, uh, years ago, there, there was a sports show called Something Someone's Follies. And, and that show, this, that segment of the news uh, was entirely devoted to all of these athletes, professional athletes, making a bunch of ridiculous mistakes. Skateboarding, jumping off a huge ramp, and attempting these big trips, uh, tricks but falling on their heads and faces and their knees, scraping and, and injuring themselves. Someone who has attempted a high five and attempting, to, uh, attempting while attempting ends up slapping someone's face. Or if you guys remember Phil Jackson, one of his uh, famous follies was he was going for a high five to Kobe Bryant and when uh, ignored by Kobe, he just grabs his own self and he just brushes his own, hair, I mean, uh, own face. We see a lot of these follies all, that, all to convey that Something is missing. It's something of a, man, you're a fool. Uh, you, you're making a scene for yourself. Uh, that's the word, and we use the word moron. It usually is offensive as it is derogatory term. And you mean to abase someone's ability to think, reason, and oftentimes even perform. And perhaps that's the reason why you're not using that word as often as I may have come off to say this morning. Did you know that we see the same word in today's text? That word is foolishness. And we see that word foolishness in our main uh, text in verse 18. That word foolishness has a root of morose in the Greek language, which we get the English word derived, which we get moron. All that to convey the word foolishness is used here in this passage. And, and Paul is using the word that was used, used widely among the Greeks who valued very highly the human intellect. So I, I conveyed this to you two weeks ago. Uh, so for the Greeks, for the Greeks uh, in that culture, making sense, appealing to sound reason, was at the very pinnacle of their identity and their culture. Yet yeah, we see the famous apostle, Apostle Paul, using the word which is equivalent to the word moron to describe the most important and perhaps the most famous act that God has ever done. And verse 18 reads to us this way. For the message of the cross is folly. The message of the cross is foolishness. It is absurd to those that are headed for destruction. But for those that are being saved, it is the power of God. And I want you to notice something here in the language that Paul uses here. I want all of you to see the extreme parallel that, we, that is found in this passage. The great paradox that is found in this passage. And the great paradox is this. We have on one hand the message of the cross. Something so debasing. Something so shameful, something even, even so, something so despicable, and something so looked down upon, and we have that on one hand. On the opposite end of that, Paul is conveying the greatest, perhaps the greatest entity ever known to mankind, which is God. Not only God, but the power of God. And we could further imply that on one hand lies the power of God and also the love of God. And Paul weighs these two words, the foolishness of the cross 
and the great power and love of God. And he he introduces to us this great paradox. And he wants the audience, he wants the readers to understand just how absurd this may have seemed at that time. And Paul extends his writing in this subject matter, giving plenty of examples throughout the remainder of chapter 1, as you can see. He uses the words uh, in verse 27, he says, Foolish things, weak things, the low and the despised things, and the things that are not. And God would use these things to counter the wise, the strong, the lofty and the sophisticated, and the things that are. Honestly, when I read that part, the things that are, I don't even know what that means. But I just assume the things that are, I, mean, I guess I'm assuming all things. Meaning God would choose the lowly things, the base things, the, the, the thrown away stuff, the weak things. And he would take all of these things to counter the most sophisticated form of wisdom. The most powerful elements in the humankind. And we see a great paradox here. Naturally, when we come across that passage, we are left with some questions here. And the question is this. What was so absurd? What was so counterintuitive about what God did in bringing us the most important message to His people? And I think if we explore that question, I think we can further induce uh, 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 questions that we can more easily comprehend. Meaning, what did the people really expect? How did, they, how did they expect to encounter God and know God? What was so unlikely about the demonstration that was made on the cross? And what kind of misalignment and what kind of anomaly were there for people to think of the cross to be so absurd, so ridiculous, so moronic even, where they would look at that as like, man, that makes no sense. What an idiot. What a moron. What a fool. I'm having way too much fun saying that word this morning. And Paul goes on to say in verse 22. It says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. I'm going to have to continue to shoot at this. All right, next slide. Can you see me? All right. So first, the Jews. So again, we have to understand the misalignment of the expectations or the hope of the Jews awaiting the Messiah. Uh, Think with me. What kind of Messiah were the Jews looking for? Because this concept of foolishness lies in the misalignment of the expectations of the Jews and what they actually end up getting. See, see, the scriptures tell us that Jews demanded signs. We can easily read the passage and interpret it as that they were looking for miraculous signs. In other words, they demanded power. They demanded something physical. They demanded signs that were outward. They demanded signs that were clearly of power and influence. That's what the Jews were looking for. That's what the Jews were waiting for. And not just supernatural, not just ultra-spiritual way, but I think we're talking about dominance here. 
We, we have to understand that Jews demanded external signs which they could place their trust and their hope in. And that primarily came in the area of politics. When the Jews were awaiting for the Messiah, what they really wanted to see happen was that God would send somebody that was in an alignment with the then current uh, political system. Someone very uh, 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 highly educated, someone who had the reputation widely accepted, someone perhaps of the noble birth, someone who had all the credentials in the notion of society. That's what the Jews were looking for. So imagine the surprise and the disappointment with the Savior or with the Messiah they ended up getting. I don't have the time to go for uh, go about just uh, all of the history of Jesus, his birth, his upbringing. You know, he was he was born from humble family. His dad was a carpenter, right? I imagine he was never rich, right? So there was a misalignment for the Jews. What about the Greeks then? What appealed to the Greeks? What was the most enticing thing for the Greeks? As mentioned earlier today, for the Greeks, it was all about knowledge. Greeks were very heady people. They prided in themselves thinking they were smart. I'm imagining they had huge heads, figuratively and literally, right? It was all about understanding. It was all about making sense, appealing to sound reason. That was at the pinnacle of their identity and culture. And Corinth, mind you, uh, it was quite the intellectual center in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Like the Athenians, they prided in themselves having the most sophisticated philosophies. And also, they, 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 they thought they, that the city of Corinth included or harbored one of the greatest minds of their, at that time. So Corinth, uh, the people of the, uh, the, the Greeks thought, man, it was all about understanding. It was all about how are you going to appease my intellectual ability? Come on, think on my level. Come on, stimulate my mind. So when you think about the expectations of the Greeks, and now the gospel message is being preached to them. And the message is this, that God so loved the world, He sent His only Son to die. And the physical evidence of God's demonstration of love and power was this thing called the cross. An instrument used to punish the worst of all criminals. So now there is a second misalignment of the expectations and the actual product that they actually got. Now, Christianity made its way to Corinth and the church was established and it began to grow. Not grow, grow. Something began to happen in Corinth. And Christians in Corinth are beginning to notice something. And then they begin to notice that as the church is growing, people are coming to Christ. That they notice something that all of these highly intellectuals in Corinth are not coming to Christ. And why is it that we have just a little band of believers and a juggernaut of academic minds and the whole world of people and the academias, and they are refusing to come to know Jesus Christ? Doesn't it seem at times that the smartest people in the world who don't believe in the gospel and the message of the cross, 
And I think Paul writes this verse, verse 18, to answer that precise question. Paul wants the audience and the readers to know that, man, what God did, it makes no sense to the world. But God purposely chose that very method that more will come to know Him in acknowledgement of God and His work. And let me unpack this passage just a little more so that we can gain a bit more understanding of this. And the first point that I want you guys to grasp is what did Paul intend to do in writing this passage? First is, Paul wants us to adjust our expectations. Meaning, Paul wants the readers or the, or the audience to adjust our expectations when pondering the gospel or when pondering the people who encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he reminds all of us that Barring the work of God's Holy Spirit, unless God intervenes, unless God conveys supernaturally with His power, Christianity will always look foolish in the minds of the non-Christian world. It has to be according to the work of the Spirit. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, The word of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. Right out of the gate, Paul, in effect, wants to challenge our expectations of what we think would happen, should happen, if someone is confronted with the gospel message. And Paul is getting at here, he's challenging one of the deepest assumptions in our minds that we don't really often realize that we even have. So deep that we don't even really think about this. And that belief, or that assumption is this, guys. And that assumption is this. Think carefully with me. If something is true, most people believe it. That's the assumption that many people operate under. If something is true, most people believe it. Therefore, we think if most people believe it, that we think that it's likely true. Are you with me so far? And, and Paul wants you to realize that people are already wired to reject this gospel message. People are already against this method of God conveying His love and His truth to the people. And he says, unless God intervenes, unless He opens our minds, unless He allows us to grasp it supernaturally, internally, people will always regard Christianity as something that is very, very foolish. And to put this statement uh, differently is this. Uh, this is kind of like logic one-on-one, right? A then B. If A implies B, then B. Converse of that statement should also be true, right? If A implies B, then not B should also imply not A. All right? That's, that's just kind of the side note here. And what, what actually he's saying is that if, in fact, the Christianity is rejected by so many is not evidence against Christianity. So let me kind of uh, share with you just what, what, what was the absurdity of the cross. Okay? In the Greco-Roman world, which Paul is writing in this context of, and it's hard to wrap our minds around exactly why the cross was at the center of this Christian message. 
in our minds, we think that the crucifixion, its number one goal was inducing physical pain. The primary element of the crucifixion, why they even adopted that cruel method, was physical pain. Uh, and, and that's actually not true. While crucifixion or that method of execution was very painful, the number one reason for that method being adopted in the ancient Greco-Roman world was, number one priority is, do you know who that, what that is? It was humiliation. It was humiliation. Yes, it was painful. Yes, but number one priority, number one reason why this was used is humiliation. A lot of times the criminals would be left hanging and they just leave them there and it would take days in unusual cases, sometimes more than a week for the person who is crucified. It would take that long for that person to die. And they would die of something called asphyxia. Uh, I can't even say it. Uh, I tried to... I, can you say it for me? Asphyxia. That. Say it one more time. I memorized it. I rehearsed about 10 times this morning. I couldn't say it. That. Meaning, they die not from the pain of their wrists, their feet pierced through the bones, not from any external wounds. They would die because of simply of suffocation. And on the cross, hanging on the cross, what they devised on that tree was something called mercy seat. So right below their buttocks, right above between the knees and the, and the butts, they would carve in, they would make a little indented place where, would, where they would, if they would have the strength, they could muster up enough strength, they would place the weight of their entire body on that tiny wedge that has gone in on the cross. It's called a mercy seat. And that was their way of keeping the person that is crucified alive for days, oftentimes more than a week at a time. And they would, and so as long as this person had the will to live, guess what? That was why this was so cruel. And they would just be left hanging, and oftentimes at the highest point of the town or the city, and everyone around that town would walk by and see, man, what a fool. What a criminal. What a worthless individual. Oh, shame on that person. Spit, mock, and curse. So that's the context of the cross. The number one reason why the crucifixion was used for humiliation. If you think about it, now think about this. Now a bunch of group of people called Christians, they're walking around saying, we're Christians. And now... We claim to worship God. And the God that we worship, He so loved us, He sent His only Son, and He died on the cross. And Christians are saying, we worship that God, we worship Jesus. So think about it. If you're a Greek, if you're a Roman, you're like, what a fool, what a buffoon, what an idiot, what a moron. Not you. That's what they're thinking. And they thought that for every Christian at that time. It was so absurd. It just would not make any sense to people that were alive at that time. Years ago, I read that there was an archaeological discovery in the city of Rome. 
dating back to perhaps second or third century at that time, sometime, something really, really long time ago. And they discovered a drawing on some walls in the, in the particular section of the city. So this is not an artistic piece. This was just some average, this is not a famous artist, some average citizen at the time made graffiti on the wall. So if you think like graffiti is a modern thing, uh, you got it wrong. People made fun of people. It's, you know, just like foolish writings on bathroom walls and some walls, gangs go around, text, we painting, all that. Guess what? That existed in the ancient world as well. Some average, some person had made a drawing on the wall. They did, the archaeologist uh, uncovered this piece of uh, artwork or piece of drawing. And that drawing had a person uh, hanging on the cross, crucified, hanging on the cross. And that person had a head of a donkey, which was, and even in that time, of day, uh, in, 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 during that time, it was a form of mockery. And at the base of the cross was another figure bowing down and worshiping that donkey on, on the cross. And the, writ, the words, description written underneath that graffiti or the drawing was, Alexa, in, written in Greek, Alexa Menas worships his God. And the God crucified who had a head, of a donkey. Someone had written a graffiti on a wall mocking this ancient person named Alexa Menas. He said, Look at Alex, look at Alexa, or I'm thinking Alex because it's a dude, right? Look at Alex. He's worshiping his God. And the God is a fully, look, a God, so called God he calls God he worships, is hanging on the cross. So clearly it was a picture of a mockery. And to convey how utterly ridiculous and silly that was at that time. Guys, what what Paul is saying here is when you present the gospel to somebody who is not open, who is oblivious to the notion of God, who is blinded by his or her intellect, someone who perceives to gain truth only by the stretch of his intellect, it's going to look foolish. That's what Paul is saying. It's going to seem absurd. It's going to come off as moronic. It is just not going to make any sense. Um, Years ago, when my family and I first immigrated to the States, uh, we lived in a three-bedroom apartment. Not bad. I mean, we, we lived in Downey and... And the arrangements were such that uh, my parents would take one room. My sister, who was, I think, 18 at that time, took one room. And my brother and I were forced to share the same bedroom, which I didn't mind because I've, I've, up to that point, I had never had my own room. So, and it's not like being the youngest in the family. I, I never have a choice in what my family does, right? So I'm like, great. You know, my brother and I, we share a room. No big deal. But about two months into us living in the States, we suddenly find out that one of my uncles, my, uh, my mom's brother, moved in with us. I'm like, honest, I didn't even like the guy. I barely knew the guy. And the next thing you know, my mom places him in our room. Scott, Chris, for the next 
How many months, we don't know because we have to wait until he's able to find a place on his own. He's going to live in your room. So my uncle, his name's Charlie. Uncle Charlie lived with us in the same room with three of us in that tiny apartment room. And I hated it because he was an older man. He smelled funny. He smoked every single day and night. He was just a knowing guy. And he talked so much. He was never, ever happy. And this, uh, he had this annoying habit. But I'm totally like throwing him under the bus here. He had this annoying habit, which I really despise. That every night, every Sunday night, he would roll up to his bed or his blankets and he would smoke his cigarette, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping. I'm laying down on the outside of the bed, which my brother's already towards the window. I'm laying down, right? So when I flip over, when I look down, I could see my uncle. And he would always say, hey, Scott. Did you go to church today? I'm like, yeah. Oh, you went to church, huh? Did you, did you worship God? Did you raise your hands? Did you pray to God? And he would always ask the same questions every single week. What did God do for you today? What did God give you today? Did you pray to God that God would give you and your, uh, your family more money so they don't have to work as hard? And he would, he would ask me this every single week. So annoying, right? And, and, I, and I'm thinking, I was like half a Christian back then. I was going to church. I wasn't even a full-fledged Christian. But I remember thinking as a young man, it's like, man, you really don't get it. And you have no respect. And he said, if God, if God, if God so loves you, why would he not give you a better life? And he would say something like this. What is so awesome about you that God, that God would choose to love you? And I knew and I understood the tone. He wasn't probing for more profound spiritual knowledge at the time. You know what he was doing, right? He was just mocking me. Because in his mind, he just couldn't grasp that if God so loves you, why do you live this way? If God is so powerful, and you're saying you're placing all of your trust in the cross, that you're worshiping in a God that is dead? And it's been years since my Uncle Charlie lived with us, and he moved out. I think it didn't even last a year. But I, I remember thinking, when I think about him, for those who, uh, those who do not believe, the cross and the message of the cross is just folly. Do you guys ever wonder what religion or what Christianity would look like if man had to have put together some kind of a religion? Do you ever think about this? Maybe it's just me being a pastor, just kind of geeking over like all these pretend scenarios you know what it, it would probably i've never invented a religion before and i'm not claiming that i'm on my way to do so so please don't stone me okay if if you see clear signs feel free to do so in the future right it, it, if i were to do that though i think it would have something to uh, do the tune of like this telling the person that you know what you're you're okay just the way you are don't ever, ever change. Just be you and do you. 
And hey, God doesn't really need to be that involved in our lives. I would say, God, you know what? Do your thing. Let me do my own thing. Give me some space. And please, no wrath, no judgment, and no hell. Hell no. No hell. Okay? I would, I would put that as a condition that whatever religion, hell is a place just, that's just terrible. So no mentioning of hell. And I would make God to be a little bit, little bit more relaxed than I, I perceive him to be. It's like, you need to ease up a little bit. Take some time off. Take a quarter off. Take a month off. Take a year off. Just let me do my own thing. And we would say, God doesn't really need to do the saving. Leave that task up to man. You see, if man were to make a religion, if I were to invent a religion, it would look nothing like Christianity. Paul's, Paul's first point here is very simple. Corinthians, what were you expecting? What were you waiting for? And he's saying, unless it is God who intervenes, Unless God somehow reveals to you, the cross and the message of the cross will always be foolishness. Second point, that he, the second thing he wants us to realize is that Christianity, when understood rightly, it should naturally lead to humility. Paul recognizes that, yes... Christianity is true. Yes, there is a, uh, a solid basis for your faith. But, but, don't think for a second that this has anything to do with your own merit. That don't, don't think for a second that you contributed to this fact God saving you. And it's highlighting the fact that, that you had no part and this scheme of salvation from God, which He made a way for us. And in fact, He says, He, 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 he throws, it. What, what's the term? Throwing a shade? What, is that the right term? Do we throw shade or do we give shade? What, what's the word? Throwing shade, right? So He's throwing not so subtle shade at the Corinthians here. If you look at verse 26, He says, For consider your calling, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. You know what he's saying? I've known you. I know who you are, Christians in Corinth. Not many of you guys are very smart. You guys are, you guys are no better than just an average fool. He says, not many of you guys are mighty. You're not that influential. You're not all that. You're not very special. And he says, not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wise. He's basically saying, hey man, whatever it is, it wasn't you. You ain't got it. You ain't it. He says the very evidence of intelligence or wisdom not being the requisite of salvation, he gives an example as a people of Corinth. You having attained salvation is the very evidence that intellectual capacity was never a requisite of you coming to uh, Jesus Christ. And he's being quite direct here. He's saying, 
If you come to Christ, if you come to believing Christianity, there should absolutely be no room for intellectual pride because it was done, it was given only by the condition of God's grace. Only by God's grace. And here's the crazy thing here. If Paul happens to be correct on his assertion, if Paul is remotely close to being right, that we had nothing to do in the scheme of salvation, and the results are quite stunning. And this can reveal something pretty amazing because it shows that you can be absolutely sure of something And at the same time, you can be absolutely humble about the very same thing. Now, why is that crazy? Did you get that? You can be sure of something. You can be absolutely sure of something. At the same time, you can be absolutely humble about it at the same time. Why is that crazy? You know why that's crazy? Because do you ever notice that in the world, in the world that we live in, The world that we live in, we define humility as uncertainty. That's actually, in most cases, the world's definition of humility. Because that's why why they think of Christians, when they think of Christians, they think we're so proud. They think that we're the most ignorant and proud people because... We go around claiming that we're absolutely sure that there's only one way to God. And the world cannot stand that. They think that, that the world continues to push and then exerts influence over us that we can't be absolutely sure of one thing and be at the same time be very humble. And so the, according to the world's definition of being humble... Christians, we're conditioned, we're being conditioned to walk around this way. Uh, yeah, I believe in this. I believe the cross is the only way. But, but, but kind of. But, but, but if there is another possibility, there, there may be. I'm not sure. Who knows? Who knows what's right? Who knows what if I believe what, is, what I believe is right? But you see, that is what the world pushes us into. Because the world continues to push us. You know, you can't be certain about something. At the same time, you can't be humble. But what Paul is claiming is here. There's absolutely the truth of God's love demonstrated to the act on the cross. And so long as we admit that it was never our own doing, it was never achieved through the condition of the human intellect, it was all by God's grace. It was all of God's doing. You know what it says? It said, absolutely, you can be both at the same time. So Christians, followers of Jesus, so do not subscribe to the world's beliefs that says you have to give up your certainty to be humble. And as a follower of Christ, as a Christian today, I'm reminded that as I place my trust and my hope in Christ Jesus, it is absolutely okay for me to be confident of the hope that I cling on to. Because it was God who revealed the truth of His love for us and to us. Paul says, be certain of your faith. 
be also certain that it is only by God's grace. Paul, <clears throat> perhaps the greatest apostle ever. I mean, I think that's no debate there. But arguably the greatest Christian ever. Paul says, I have nothing to boast about. He says, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can be to contribute to the work of Christ on the cross. For that, he writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me recap here, guys. Paul wants us to adjust our expectations when pondering the gospel and when pondering the cross. And he wants to remind us that borrowing any work of the Holy Spirit of God, the cross will always be foolishness in the minds of non-Christians and non-believing world. Second, Paul wants us to adjust our attitudes. He calls us to be humble. He says, it's not by your own doing. So you shouldn't boast. He says, boast, but boast only in the Lord. He says that God chose this way. He chose this particular method of salvation. So we would not boast. 